This is uh, focused on Jesus. Verse 31. He, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days he will rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their souls? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Can you shout amen? Amen. Please be seated, Lord. We're really depending on you to use this broken piece of flesh that I am and to just work supernaturally in the hearts and minds of those who are here, those listening to my video, and this preacher, would you? We'll give you the glory. This is yours anyway. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time, either here or my video, uh, uh, this is the final week of a four-week series that we've entitled, Go. And uh, we, uh, this series has really uh, tried to take Jesus seriously uh, regarding the words that is recorded that he spoke in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, when after his resurrection, he said to his followers, go into the whole world and preach or proclaim the good news. Everybody shout, go. Oh, now, here's, my, here's the way I think about it. Anybody who gets up from the dead has earned the right for you and I to take seriously. Can somebody say amen? So since Jesus has risen from the dead, I think we ought to take him seriously. So this last four weeks, we've been trying to do that. And I told you last week that St. Francis... Uh, essentially said that uh, the best way to go and proclaim the gospel, because part of what we're trying to figure out is what does that mean for you, not for me, but for you and for all of us together, uh, is, uh, the way, I love the way he said, he says, you know, go preach Jesus, go preach the gospel as, as often as you can, and when necessary, shout necessary, use words. In other words, he's saying, man, go live, go live it. Let your life proclaim the good news that comes with knowing that Jesus has conquered death, the triumph over, uh, over death. And so what we've tried to do in the last four weeks is to help you to figure out how to do that. And so essentially what we've said is that it comes down to reducing uh, how we live because Jesus is inviting us into a new lifestyle to, to reduce it to really three things, to live lives of love, to live lives of service, and to live lives that are generous. And we're using this Be Rich campaign to practice this together. 
Now, here's what I realized the other day as I was thinking about it. If you take seriously living your life shaped by any one of those three words, shout love, shout serve, shout give. If you take seriously living your life by any one of those three words, any one, just pick one, it implies the other two. So, everybody shout homework. Here's your homework. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to... Leave here and go home. Let's assume that you say, you know what? I try to live a life of love. So I want you to ask your spouse or your significant other, your best friend, whatever the case might be. I want you to go home. I want you to test it. And and here's here's what I want you to ask. Let them know. I'm trying to live a life of love, and I want to know whether or not your experience of my love, does it feel like service and generosity? Is my love, do you experience it as my willingness to serve you? Do you experience it as my willingness to be generous? Is that how you experience my love? Or if you are, uh, you say, I live my life based on service. Perhaps you're in, there are tons of careers that are service-based. Pastors are supposed to be service servants, uh, lawyers and doctors and uh, electricians and plumbers and folk who work at McDonald's and Burger King, the wide range, all supposed to be serving. Well, if in fact that's your commitment, why don't you check out with your clients next week? Just ask one or two people, how do you experience my life? Because it's, it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. Everybody say, how? So you want to ask the folk, do you experience my service? as an experience of love and generosity. Now, how many of you know that it's possible to be served by someone and it not feel like love or generosity? For example, I was in McDonald's uh, a few days ago, and I confessed it to my wife this morning, and so now she knows. <laughs> and the woman who was serving me was so mean. And, and I'm paying her to serve me. But it did not feel like love coming from her or generosity. So ask the people that you're supposed to be serving in your life. Say, hey, how does it feel to you? It's a test, right? Or perhaps you say you live your life as a generous person, all right. Well, ask some of the folk around you, how do they experience your generosity? Ask your kids, how do you experience my generosity? Do you experience as, does it feel to you like love? Does it feel to you like I'm serving you? Now, here's the deal. Give people permission to be honest. Do not ask it in such a way as to say, and you know what you better say. Right? Because what I'm suggesting to you that this is an opportunity for you to take a step forward and growing towards becoming more like Jesus, a little bit more loving, a little bit more servant-oriented, a little bit more generous, generous in your life. Now, let people be honest with you. And when they be honest with you, because some people are going to shock you. They're going to say, well, no, not really. They're going to say, well, you, you say you live a life of love, but most of the time I'm your best friend. And most of the time when we're talking, we, you ain't talking about me. We're talking about you. 
And some of us are going to say, well, no, I understand it's generous. Yes, you give me some. I see you give, and I've been a recipient of your giving, but you make me feel bad every time I take something from you. So when they give you honest feedback, do not respond with the words, but. Because that opens up the door for an excuse. No, 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 no. Say, wow, thank you. Then I want you to ask them a second question. Can you tell me one thing, ask your spouse, your kids, your parents, can you tell me one thing that I can do? Sought one thing. Can you tell me one thing that I can do that would change how you you are experiencing my trying to live a life of love or service or generosity? Just give me one thing. And when they tell you, you make the commitment, say, okay, let me work on this one thing. This conversation can change somebody's marriage life when you go home. Or the relationship you have with your parents. Or in either case, the point I'm making is that Jesus is inviting us through this series to really adopt love and serve and give as a lifestyle. And we're, we're trying to practice it together and just take an extra step. Secondly, through this series, I think Jesus is saying to us, I want you to examine your commitment. Now, I've always said that discipleship has three sides. There's how much do I trust? How deep is my commitment? How broad is my heart? Generous is my heart. So today the text, along with this series, is inviting us to think about What kind of commitment do I have to Jesus? How do you measure your commitment? How deep is it? What are you willing to give up for Jesus? What are you willing to take on for Jesus? Say to the person next to you, I think he's probably talking to me, but I'm going to pretend he's talking to you. Go ahead, talk. Interesting the text before us is really wrestling with this question. Jesus is trying to drive this home. The context of this passage, really, if, if you back up several verses, you'll find out that Jesus is in the hills headed towards uh, Caesarea Philippi. But on the other side of Caesarea Philippi is Jerusalem. And they actually can see Caesarea Philippi from where they are and Jerusalem. And so while they're headed towards Caesarea Philippi, he's prompted to ask this question. And he wants to focus their attention on the ultimate destination is Jerusalem. And so he asked his disciples as they're walking with him, he says, hey, who do people who don't really know me, who do they say I am? They go through a list of answers. At the end of the day, it basically is summarized by the, folk, by the answer, well, most people think you're some kind of prophet. He said, okay, good. Then he says, who do you say I am? Because you've been with me for three and a half years now. You've, you've been with me day and night. So let me see how well do you know. Who do you say I am? To some degree, every time we come to church, and oftentimes Jesus overtakes us during the course of the week, and we're confronted with this question. Let me just ask you, who is Jesus to you? I mean, really, who, who, who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus the Lord? Is he your redeemer? Is he just an inspiring figure? Who is he? 
That's the question we have to wrestle with. The question I have to wrestle with. Who is Jesus, right? So he raises this question. Peter says, hey, I know, I know. On behalf of the rest of the disciples, he said, look, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, you're right. Then Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. See, because Jesus understood that what the average person thought was meant by the word Messiah was something totally different than what he would be. And so he said, don't tell anybody. And a little later on, uh, he'll make the point that wait till after I die on the cross and I rise from the dead. Then you go tell everybody because they have a reference point for who I am. So in the meantime, let me tell you what I understand it means to be Messiah. That's verse 31. And so Jesus, the text says, so Jesus starts to teach them. He says, here's what I mean by this. Here's, here's how I see. Here's my understanding of Messiah. Watch, watch what happens. He says, he says, he starts teaching that the Son of Man, everybody shout Son of Man. All right, right there. He's already lifted. He's already changed the meaning already because for the average Jewish person, the Messiah was a political figure who was going to come and consolidate Israel's power. They were going to kick the Romans out and was going was to totally transform the nation politically and economically, etc. But he says the Son of Man is a figure that comes out of Daniel 7, and this is much more of a spiritual figure who shows up at the very end of the era, right? At the, kind of the end of the world kind of person. And so what Jesus is saying is that really I want you to understand that my ideal of Messiah, when, when I say Messiah, come on now, I, I do not want you to reduce me to local politics. Not to the local politics of Rome or today, not to the local politics of America. No, but if you fully understand who I am and accept me for who I am, I will change your politics. Do not reduce me to someone who's just going to help you gather a lot of money and become wealthy. But if you fully understand who I am and what I'm asking of you, I'll change how you spend your wealth. Do not Simply reduce me to somebody who can help you get a powerful position. But if you are submitted to me and if you're part of a larger redemptive narrative that I'm connected to, I'll change how you use your power. Whether you're a spouse or parent or CEO or teacher. Changes. Second thing, he says, so son of man must. Everybody shout must. M-U-S-T, if you if you got your own Bible, you can circle it. It shows up twice in that same verse. You want to write it down? Must. What he's saying here, watch this. What he's saying is, that everything that comes after is he's saying, he's saying essentially it's been ordained in the providential pages of history that in order for me to change the trajectory of human history, that I'm going to have to go through these must. Must what? Must suffer many things. So the next time you're asking God, why do I have to suffer? I want you to come back and remember this verse. Read this verse and ask yourself, come on now, if I'm a follower of Jesus and he had to suffer many things, what does that mean for me? So he comes up, he says, I have to suffer many things. 
says, I'm going to be rejected by the religious institutions, the elders, the teachers of the chief priests and the teachers of the law that has shaped my essence of my culture. And then he says the word must again. Everybody shout must. He must be killed. Now, by this time, he's lost most of his audience. This is like, whoa, wait, wait. And then he goes on to say, and in three days, I'll rise again. And they didn't hear that. They got lost somewhere about killed. Whoa, whoa. And so we know this because Peter, where in verse 32 says, and he said it openly and publicly. In other words, he said a few, few verses earlier, he said, don't tell anybody I'm Messiah. But this, what he's talking about, he's saying openly and publicly. And what he's saying is not the words that I told you, because you guys got a confused image. Just, just, I'm giving you some dots that you can connect after I get up from the dead. It's not what you say, kind of how you live. Peter, I love Peter. Remember, Peter just a few verses earlier said, you're the Messiah. But then after Jesus explains, here's what the Messiah means, Peter said, whoa, wait a moment. And the text says, he takes Jesus aside. It's really kind of condescending uh, language that's going on here. It's the same language that's used in Acts when it says that Aquila and Priscilla took Apollo's side to teach him, right? So there's this notion of uh, kind of patronizing, if you will. He takes Jesus. He really just puts his arm around Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Come over here. Let's just talk. Let's talk. Jesus, 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 Jesus. I don't know. Maybe you had too much coffee today. I'm not really sure what's going on. But, you know, you're kind of like going off in the deep end. Can I kind of like remind you of what? A Messiah is this notion of Peter teaching Jesus, right? Now, I, I know this part of what's going on because when Jesus rebukes him, he's saying, man, you're more concerned about human stuff than about God. So, so this is part of what this notion of Peter saying is, look, Jesus, wait a moment. This, is, this notion about getting, you know, this loving this, that you're self-sacrificing. Not, no, 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 that's not supposed to be the point. No, 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 you're going to become the king. And you're going to be at the center of power. And by the way, we're going to be with you. Right? You remember James and John's mother went to, went to Jesus early and said, when you get into your glory, can one of my boys sit on the right and another sit on the left? This is in their mind. They're thinking like, man, you're going to get some peace. And look, you're going you to be powerful. Just chill out. Stuff. I don't know what you're talking about. Just death stuff. Come on. And, and, and given you know, this, this notion of serving. No, 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 Jesus, you're going to be served. We're going to be right there with you. Come on. We, uh, and, and giving. No, no, no. It's about getting. It's about getting. We need to get these Romans out of here. We need to get some real power. And then we'll, we'll, we'll together with you, we'll, we'll handle it right. We'll handle it right. We'll handle it right. And the text says he rebukes, he reprimands Jesus. Can you imagine that? Reprimands Jesus. Very next verse says, well, Peter's talking to him like this. So, you know, I know he's talking to him like this. He pulled him away because the text says when Jesus looks back, everybody say looks back, looks back at the disciples. It's kind of like Jesus kind of, kind of clicks in. He says, man, I just, I got to deal with this. And then the text says, so Jesus, it's, it's kind of like Jesus pushed back on Peter and, and, and says, get behind me, Satan. And the text says he rebukes Peter. Now get this. Read the verses together. The verse, first verse says, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus. That's 32. Verse 33 says, and Jesus rebukes, rebukes Peter. Peter's rebuking Jesus back and forth, rebuking back and forth. Well, what's going on here? 
I want to suggest to you that there's this struggle about who's going to be in charge and whose agenda is going to win the day. Now, let's just be honest. That's where we are. We, we, we struggle with Jesus, right? We try, we try to fit Jesus into our dreams, don't we? Don't we? Don't we? We try to twist Jesus into, into really one who serves our ambitions and our agenda. We're, we're just like all of us. We, we're mindful. We got to be, uh, be aware of that temptation. I mean, come on, let's just admit it. Look, look, look. The, the, the truth be told. There's a part of all of us who wants Jesus to be a really good janitor and just be there to clean up the messes we leave behind. Right? Right, right. The truth be told, there's a part of us that wants Jesus to be a really good Aaron person and, 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 you know, and, 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 you know, and, and, and just, you know, get, get us the stuff we need. The truth be told, there's a part of us that wants Jesus to be a really good Uber driver. Right, right, to pick us up at this place and take us to our next destination of success. And you know what you do with an Uber driver? You tell the Uber driver where to take you. That's Peter. He's got, he wants to tell Jesus, you're my Uber driver. Here's where I want you to take us. Jesus says, no. He says, get behind me. Satan, if you read more close, you'll find the other place that Jesus used this term is when Jesus is in the, in the, the wilderness, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, where he's being tempted. goes through those three temptations. And what he's really saying here, when he calls Peter tempted, tempt, uh, get behind me, Satan, what he's really saying is, I mean, you know, you're, you're trying to tempt me. And there's, there's some temptation happening here. Because at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't want to suffer. He doesn't want to be crucified. He doesn't want to have to go through all of that suffering. Come on now. But he's willing. And that's the message for us. None of us want to have to suffer, want to have to go through hard times for our faith. But the question is not do you want to. You'd be crazy if you wanted to. But the question is, are you willing? If, in fact, it is a part of a larger redemptive narrative. Are you willing? And so, as Jesus says, no, no, no. You're focused on people stuff. I'm focused on a God agenda. And then, and then he says, then he realizes, he says, then the next verse, verse 34 says, Jesus realized, okay, I'm going to have to teach some more here. Because he looks at everybody's confused. So it says he calls all the crowd, the crowd. He says, come on, guys. All of y'all come in close, come in close so I can teach you. It says, he included the disciples. Y'all come in close. A few moments ago, I told you, here's my understanding of what a Messiah is. Now, I need to teach you what my understanding of a disciple is. You see, the clearer I become about who Jesus is, the clearer I can become about who I should be. So here's how he goes with his teaching. Listen, he pulls everybody in. And he says, look at the verse. It says, so he says, anyone who wants to be my disciple, let them deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. Come on, shout, deny myself. Well, that's, that's, that's an act of love. Shout, pick up my cross, 
instrument of death. That's about service. Willing to die for something bigger. Follow Jesus. Shout it. Follow Jesus. That's generosity. Because Jesus would give his all. Follow him. One question could be, what, what part of my life am I holding back? For Jesus. Now, now I've backed into something here. I've been waiting for a few weeks to talk about. Deny myself. Pick up the cross. Follow. A few weeks ago, two of, I think it was about two weeks ago, maybe three, before I could exit the church, I got a text through the news service that in Texas, in church, there had been a shooting. 29 people had been murdered. Another 20 plus people had been wounded. This hit me just right, right in my heart. Among the people who'd been killed was a, was the fourteen year old daughter of the pastor. The pastor and wife weren't there; they were they were out of town. I got a thirteen. I'm a pastor. I got a thirteen year old daughter. So this started to drive some questions in me. I'm just just be honest with you. Just started to drive some questions. First of all, I thought I wonder what the people in my congregation is thinking when they read this news story, and I surmise that there probably be some people who are thinking. How could God allow this to happen in a church house? So, so, so the, the answer for that, let me just answer that in a real short form. Can you shout free will? That's right. God gave you free will. That's the only way you can have an authentic relationship with you. So the same free will that you have to choose to love and to serve and to give is the same free will that you have to choose the opposite. To be destructive. And whichever choice you make always includes more people than you. All right. But the second thing I thought about is that on, in one sense, the people who died in that church died because of their faith. Now, here's what I mean. I don't mean that the guy shot them because they were Christians. No, the guy shot them because he was crazy. Yeah, mentally messed up. But here's my point. They were in that church because they were practicing their faith. That is the only reason they got killed because they were in the church. Had they not been practicing their faith, they wouldn't have been there. So to some degree, it was the practice of their faith that got them killed. Oh, then I started thinking about this passage. Anyone who would be my disciple, let him or her deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Then I started asking myself some really tough questions. I wonder, that's his first question I asked. Herman, what kind of commitment do you, if you had a choice, if you were in a situation, would you die for Jesus? let's just frame it a different way. Most of us think that America is the capital of Christianity. We're wrong. There's 2.1 billion Christians in the world. Most of them live outside of America. And most of us have no idea of the fact 
that between 2005 and 2015, 900,000 people across the globe, in Africa, in Asia, in parts of the Middle East, 900,000 of them, and there's a list of folks that she's going to put up there that said these are some of the countries where it happened, died solely because they were Christians. We call them martyrs. Matter of fact, the Greek word for martyr is the same Greek word for witness. And most of these people, a lot of these people knew that if they, if they, if they stay where they were staying, that the likelihood is that they would be killed, killed for their faith. Some are dying in wars that, where they are targeted. Some are dying in, in places where genocide targets them. Some are dying and some are being tortured to death. Some are being starved to death. Some are being beheaded. Some are because of, 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 of spontaneous stuff that's going on. They're dying. So this just kind of made me think. Would I be willing to die? I mean, if a guy came in here and says, I want all the Christians to stand up because I'm going to shoot you. I mean, like, how many would stand up? I don't what, 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 I'm just asking. So no, don't answer the question. Don't answer. I'm just trying to get you to think. All right, now, everybody shout practical. Yeah, that's what you think. It's like, come on, Pastor, come on. What's the real life? Like, come on, I'm not, I don't know. I'm never going to have to face this thing about dying for Jesus. Well, let me see. Can I get practical to you? Because there's more than one way to die. Let me tell you some stories about people that I either know personally or I've, I've heard about from people that I know personally. There's this one couple who are foster parents, husband and wife, and they take in teenagers. That's what they do, two, three at a time. They spent years of their lives doing that. They allow their lives to be disrupted by teenagers who are in trouble. And they spend their resources and all that stuff trying to take care of them. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I can't imagine the pain and the turmoil this couple goes through to care for these, these, these struggling teenagers. You know, I think that fits. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Or I know this man whose wife is suffering from mental health. It's a horrendous challenge for him. She embarrasses him publicly. It's tremendously painful for him to try to care for her. But because of his fidelity to, 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 a, to a higher purpose, he allows himself, he, he has decided, I'm not going to leave her because who would care for her? So every day he gets right back in that space Denying himself, picking up his cross, and following. I know a young man who told me several months ago, after a, a, a time of reflection through a message, he said to me, I am going to adopt a life of celibacy. I'm no longer going to be having sex with all these women because, I, one, I'm leaving a lot of pain behind, and two, if I ever get married, I want my uh, spouse to know that she was worth my waiting for her. Well, I, I think every day what it looks like for this young man, denying himself, picking up his cross. You see, there's more ways than one to die, isn't there? And follow. 
Or a young woman who is gay. You ask about her sexuality, she'd be very clear about it, she says, I'm gay. She doesn't expect her sexuality to change on this side of eternity. But she's made the commitment in this season that she's not going to be involved in a same-sex relation out of a commitment to a, out of fidelity to a higher sense of purpose. I think that's like denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following. You see, there's more than one way to die, isn't there? Or the young adults who are willing to risk their jobs and their future to engage in civil disobedience for the right treatment of people. I, I think for them, it's, it's this notion of denying themselves, picking up their cross, and following. Or a preacher friend of mine who said that after he and his wife got their last raise, they asked the question, how much is enough? How much money is enough for us? And they decided they were going to draw a line right there and that all additional raises and money that they would get that, they would, that they, would, they would give it away along with the other's amount that they're giving away. I think that kind of looks like denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following. You get the point, right? There's more than one way to die. And it's different for everybody, right? All of us have that place that we want to wrestle with Jesus. And, and Jesus is saying to us, would you just get behind me and follow me? And trust me. Deepen your commitment. Because remember, I did suffer. I was killed. But on the third day I got up. You can't lose following me. Here's how he wraps up the discussion with them. And he wraps it up with us today. He says, listen. He says, those of you who are trying to save your life, you know, you're so concerned about what you can acquire, what you can grab, what you can possess, you're going to lose it. He says, but those of you who are willing to lose it, not just lose it in general, but to lose it for me and for the gospel's sake. In other words, uh, I, I'm going to sell out to the higher redemptive purpose of what God is doing in the world and in Jesus Christ. He says, you will gain your life. And he says, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world, to be on top, to have all the money, to have all the wealth, and lose your soul? In a sense, he says, what is the problem to have everything you want and lose your sense of self? Both in time and eternity. He says, what would you give for an exchange for yourself? How much is your soul worth? And it begs the question, how many of us have sold our souls? And then, of course, he says, I know some of you will be tempted the way that my friend Peter, my, 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 my ace boon coon, was tempting me. He was saying I was being too extreme. I know that some of you, when you start thinking about your next step of commitment, some of your best friends, some of your family members are going to tempt you by saying you're going off the deep end. They're going to tempt you by saying you're trying to be too extreme. And, and, and they're going to make you feel embarrassed and ashamed. He said, but I just want you to keep this in mind. If you are embarrassed to own me, 
to live for me, to die for me. Might I be embarrassed when it's time for you to stand before me and the angels? You see, this is about commitment and your next step. Where do you need to stretch? Not for the preacher, not for the church, but where is Jesus saying? I'm calling you to stretch as you seek to be more loving, greater servant, and more generous, tied to the redemptive purpose of a higher call. Can you say amen? Give God a hand praise.